So as we continue on in this series, it's just uh, helpful for us to just refresh our minds what we're doing uh, with this series, The Anatomy of a Healthy Christian. What we're doing is we're going through various uh, topics, various categories, you might say, that the Bible talks about, and not just showing you what they are and what God wants them to look for in your life, but why they're so vital to your spiritual vitality, right? Why these things matter, why they, how they contribute to your spiritual health. And today, we get to talk about maybe the most uncomfortable, maybe the most controversial of those topics that we're going to cover in this five-week series, give and generous giving. And to, to kind of give you an analogy of why this is so important, I've used this in the past. I'm going to use it again because I think it's, it's just a, a great analogy that applies to everything that we're uh, talking about here in this series. I want you to think of it like this way. Let's say that you go to your doctor for a checkup. And as you're talking to your doctor, uh, your doctor says, how are you? You don't seem well. And you're saying, well, yeah, I'm a little off. You know, I'm, I'm not sleeping well. I keep waking up a lot. I'm irritable. I'm stressed. I'm frustrated. And also, I'm just sluggish. I'm, I'm just sometimes in a mental fog. I, I don't know what's going on. I can tell something is wrong with me. Doc, can you fix me? Can you help me? Can you make me healthier? Can you, can you draw some blood, run some tests, do some scans, memorize a TT thingy that you do? Could you, could you do that? And then figure out, diagnose, prescribe some medication, and make me better. Your doctor will probably look at you and say, I'd be happy to do what I can. I'd be happy to run those tests in the sequence that I need to run them in and do those things. But before I do any of that stuff, I got to ask you some basic questions. Questions like, what's your diet and exercise look like? What are you eating? How much are you eating? What are you drinking? How much? How often are you drinking? Are you moving around? Your exercise? You getting any exercise or not? And what's your sleep schedule look like? What are you doing before you sleep? What's your work? What's your personal life look like? Are there any stressors, relational drama that, that might factor in? And if you were to say back to your doctor, that is none of your business, doc. <laughs> like, don't, don't ask me that stuff. That's personal. Like, that, that is private stuff, Doc. That is not what I came here to share with you. You do your MRI thingamajigs. You do your labs and all that sorts of stuff. That's your, stay in your lane, doctor. You, you figure that stuff out. You'd see the results. You diagnose it from that and prescribe medication. Come on. What do you think your doctor would say? She might look at you and she might say, it's all connected. Like, I, I could do those things. But what I see might not give me the picture of what's really going on. I have to ask these questions. I have to get this information. I have to get the whole picture so I can give you a proper diagnosis and help you with your health. Do you see the point? When you and I read Scripture and open our Bibles, um, it's arguably said, actually maybe it's an inarguable fact, that the most, if one of the most, if not the most talked about topic in all the Bible is money. Sure is one of those things to talk about a lot if none of us struggle with it. And yet, whenever you read the passages, especially in the New Testament, and you hear what Jesus and the gospel writers say and Paul, and, and in every single book of the Bible, when you look at all of what it says on money, it never talks about it in a vacuum. It never just says, hey, by the way, I just want to give you some financial tips or just, just some things to watch out for that's completely unrelated to your spiritual health, just, just some nuggets of knowledge for you to know. No. 
Every time scripture and God brings it up, it always is brought up in the context of your spiritual health. In other words, every financial transaction you make or don't make is a spiritual transaction. Your generosity or your lack thereof is a direct indicator of your spiritual health. And yet, we have bought into the lie and been so conditioned by this world, and especially over the last several decades, that says this is a personal matter. This is private, and this is not something that, that we open up. Like, like Pastor, you want to talk to me about my spiritual health? Talk to me about worship like we did a couple weeks ago. That is absolutely vitally important, right? And keeping God as number one. And, and talk to me about what you did a couple weeks ago, about, about growing in my faith by being in the word, connected in the word daily, devotionally, personally growing from it. That's good. That's a good thing. And talk next week. Go ahead and talk next week about connecting others to Christ and being in the mission that God has for us, reminding us that my purpose is not my own, but God's purpose, God's mission, and I've got opportunities to be involved with that. Remind me of that. But don't talk to me about my money. Don't talk to me about my giving. That is private. That is personal. That is nobody's business. And God would say, au contraire. It is directly connected to your spiritual health. The way you view and use your money is a direct indicator of your understanding and appreciation of God and his grace. But lest you think that what I'm essentially saying is, okay, so pastor is telling me that if I give more, then I will be healthier. <laughs> Let me unequivocally say no. Because as I mentioned earlier, it's not just about the what's, but the why. God doesn't just want an action. He wants a heart behind it. Some of you maybe have heard me say this phrase in my preaching before. I'll say it again because I want you to pick up on it. I want you to hear it again and again. God doesn't just want your outward behavior. He wants your inner heart. He doesn't just want things like worship and coming to a place like this just to be something that, okay, I show up, check the box, I'm a good Christian. Okay, growing in the word, I did my devotion today, check the box, did I get anything out of it? Maybe not, but I'm a good Christian, I did it, I'm growing. Okay, God wants me to give, all right, here you go. Was it given with a heart connected to it? No, it was one of those things I was supposed to do, but I'm a good. In fact, that's, that's one of the things that gives the church such a bad rap, right? The, the church only wants my money, the church only cares about money, and here I am at a church and pastors talking about my money. Boy, there's a lot for us to unpack, right? More than we can do in one sermon. But let me first and just foremost say that if you give without your heart attached to it, God doesn't want it. In fact, I was, I was talking with a brother in the faith a couple weeks ago about this conversation, and he said, how do I get to the point where I give cheerfully? and give joyously and generously like I see. Like, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what God says, but the heart, the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Like, how do I do that? And in fact, I guess if you were to say it this way, if, if like healthy biblical generosity was this equation, what would you insert? You know, blank plus blank times blank minus this divided. What, what would you put in there to say that's what 
healthy generosity. That's what it takes. And for the analogy's sake, that's what we're going to be unpacking today. As we take a look at a very brief but beautiful description of the early Christian church in Acts chapter 4, and we see not just what they did, but we get a glimpse into why they did it to help us solve this mysterious equation, if you will. We're going to start at verse 32. Take a look with me. Luke tells us all the believers were one in heart and mind. Now, now notice, this wasn't just a few. This wasn't just, um, okay, the majority of them. No, this was all. All the believers were of the same mindset. And one of the things that they had the same mindset on was this. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. Like any. All. Like from their largest asset all the way down to the tiniest trinket, they said, it's not mine. And if it's not mine, then whose is it? And they would say, well, it's each other's. No, because it's not mine. It's, yes, we share it, but who owns all of it? And what you would say is, you conclude God. In fact, that's kind of the first step, if you will, into this figuring out this healthy generosity. If you were to put this equation together, what you would need is not an owner mentality, but a manager mindset. A stewardship mentality, sometimes we say in the church. And admittedly, that, that word stewardship is a beautiful word, but it's also kind of being an outdated word. Like when was the last time you, you talked about uh, being a steward or stewardship outside of the context of a church setting? Probably not a lot. That doesn't mean I want to get rid of the word. I think it's a great word. I just want to make sure that we understand what that word is, the idea of stewardship. The idea of stewardship is managing wisely the stuff that's been entrusted to us by someone else. So in the old days, like if you were a steward, you weren't the owner of the house or the, the things. You were the steward. The owner put all that stuff to you to take care of it. You were the caretaker, the manager of all of his or her stuff. And so therefore, when you looked at all the stuff that was in your care, you, you didn't just use it and, and take care of things in the way that you wanted, but no, this is, this is his stuff, this is her stuff, I've got to act with it on their best interest, on their behalf, according to their wishes. And so when you look at those Christians in Acts chapter 4, do you see how this was so mission critical to, to what we're talking about? Like, this isn't my stuff. This is God's stuff. And if there are people that we have here who need it, that's kind of in line with God's will and God's mission. So, okay, <laughs> here, here we go. Because it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to God. That's what they believed. And my question is, do you? Like, when you think about your largest asset all the way down to your tiniest trinket, who owns it? You or God? Like, like some of you, that, that big 401k retirement account that you've been saving up for and be, trying to be faithful to put all stuff in there repeatedly every year, who owns that? You or God? And the bank account, and the house, and the land, and the assets that you have, the car, or the cars in your driveway or your garage, 
some of you, uh, maybe it's just simple as like, hey, I'm a teenager, but I have this. And maybe your parents would say, no, that's actually mine. Uh, but like, if, if this is what you own, or maybe a tablet, or maybe just the clothes that you wear, not just the fancy ones for a great night out, but the dingy ones, the rags that you use to do the chores and the painting around the house, things like that. Who owns all of that stuff? You or God? And I know it's really easy to say, like the psalmist does in the Old Testament, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Yeah, some of you know that passage. It's, it's very easy. Some of you know the old hymn. We sang it at our first service. We give thee but thine own, whatever the gifts may be. All that we have is thine alone, God. A trust, O Lord, from thee. It's really easy to sing that. It's really easy to say that. But we can sing it, say it, and know the truths, but functionally live Like, it's not God's, but it's mine. And I know that from personal experience. In fact, I remember the very first paycheck I ever got. I was 16 years old, and I got a job with my older brothers at a nursery. Not the ones with babies, (laughs) the ones with plants. This was a lot less messy, a lot less screaming. And the way it typically worked was most Monday through Fridays, We would go from school, drive over to the greenhouse shop, it was called, and we would change into our work clothes and work, typically until closing time. And then Saturday, maybe we'd work a full day, half day. Sunday after church, we were an hour away. We went back out to the van, grabbed our work clothes, went back into church, quickly changed, went back out to my brother's car, and we drove about 50 minutes down to work and worked till 5, till closing time. And it wasn't just the kind of job where you just sit there and you water plants all day long and you just make them look pretty. No. We had like 7,500 pound trees that we would have to move in these massive pots or or dig up and then take this burlap and and somehow like get it underneath there. And then you get that and you go to the customer's car and they want it loaded up and they got this tiny little hatchback and you're thinking, how is this mass kind of, okay, we got to figure that out. And, And then there's the mulch and there's the manure and the peat moss and the gravel and the bricks and all these things. Like it was, it was a really good job for a 16-year-old. I worked really hard, harder than I ever had worked in my life. And after a couple weeks, then it came. The paycheck. What I've been waiting for so long. I still remember my boss, Marty. At the end of the day, he hands out the paychecks, and there it was, right in my hands. We get in the car, my brothers are driving home, I rip open the envelope, take it out. Oh, there it is. I think there was some singing from some angelic choir going on, as I saw and held on to like the most amount of money that I had ever made in my life. And my mind was just elated at all the stuff I could do with it. And I got home, I was so excited. And my dad, he made a comment to something to the effect of this. So, what are you gonna give back to God? And you know what I said? I said, dear father, I'm so glad you asked. Because I'm one step ahead of you, father. I have prayed about this, and I have made a plan to give a generous proportion of this paycheck repeatedly, every time I get it, back to God with praise and joy and happiness as a way to thank him for everything that he has gifted to me, because it's all his, and this is my way to get back to him and say, here you go, God, and I trust you, and I'm so thankful that you'll continue to provide for me. And this is church, and we're not supposed to lie, right? (laughs) I didn't exactly 
say that, I was ticked. I was so mad that my dad would have the audacity to ask me what I'm going to just suddenly, now that I've made my first paycheck, what I'm going to give back? Just like, like, wait a second, dad, like, I, I got cuts and scrapes and bruises and mud and muscles from this. I worked so hard for this. This is all mine. And, and my mind is thinking, I've got friends who, who are playing Halo. And I'm going to get an Xbox and I'm going to play live with them. And, and you know what? I'm going to get a house. I've got to, or not a house, a car. I've got to save up for a car so that I can be freed from the tyranny of having to go in my brother's cars and be slaves to their driving and on their schedule. No, I can have my own car. I can do all this sorts of stuff. My mind thought, this is mine. Every single penny, I have earned it, and I am going to do with it as I please. And it's my experience, not just personally, but you might say professionally, that that is the default response of a human being in terms of the stuff they have. We might say God owns it, but we live, he doesn't own it. It's mine. He didn't give me anything. <laughs> I earned it. I, I scraped and clawed for years and decades. I worked so hard. I studied so long in school to earn this degree. To get this is, this is my stuff. Nobody gave it to me. I earned it. I deserve it. And then I think of this, this beautiful passage from Deuteronomy. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Sound familiar? Look what I have done. I, I've done all this sorts of stuff. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It's like God looked at his Old Testament Israelites as they were about to head over to the Jordan River and do the conquering and the conquesting and the settling down, and he knew, he knew how wayward human hearts are. And so to, like, to curb that off, he says, I know what you're going to think. And I know where your heart's going to naturally go. Remember me. Remember, I give you the ability to have everything you have. I worked hard for it. I studied. I, I, I scraped and clawed. Who gave you the brains? Who gave you the bronze? And who gave you the talents and the abilities and the parents and the time and place and your setting in life? And that boss, that manager who just took a chance on you, that HR department that decided to hire you, who, who put you in all of those places? Did you have any control over it? It was God. God did all of that stuff for you. And, and what you see is what those Christians knew, no matter how you slice it, whenever you add it all up, you can't take any credit for it. It's truthfully, realistically, honestly, all his. I, I like the way one uh, pastor put it. He said, the word mine should be this endangered species in the Christian's mouth. Mine. Oh, God's. Right? Like, I don't, I don't just say, okay, God, here's your one, two, five, ten percent, and the rest is mine. Oh, God, it's all yours. And I want to honor you with everything that you have gifted to me. And when you start thinking with a manager's mindset, it totally changes your perspective, Right? 
Like, God is a really generous giver, isn't he? He says, yeah, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, it's, it's mine, and I'm going to give you this much. I'm going to give you this much. I'm going to give you maybe this much or this much or, or anywhere in between because I want to. I want to see what you'll do with it. And you think, who in the world am I that God would give me this stuff to use for him? He wants you to share in the same heart and mind set of those early Christians. And I understand he owns all of it, and he's just excited to see what you're going to do with it. And if that's all I told you, it wouldn't be enough. If we just stopped here, and your big takeaway was, okay, have a, a manager's mindset, you might give, but I doubt it would be cheerful. I doubt it would be joyful. I doubt it would be loving, maybe the begrudging, obligated giving. I, I call it the should giving. Why'd you give? Because I should. Because I'm supposed to. Because I'm a Christian. Because it's the right thing to do. And like, that's, that's all this obligated should giving that you can do with a, a heart that's totally detached from it. And this is why that church gets, uh, the churches get a bad rap, right? Oh, here's a pastor talking about money, and he's just saying, okay, it's all God's. Give it up. He wants it. <sighs> My answer to that? No. Uh, someone once asked me, Pastor, what would I say to my friend when he says, I would come to church, but all they want is my money? My answer is, tell your friend to keep it and come to church. Because God doesn't want your wallet. He doesn't need your wallet. You know what he wants? Your heart. And if you just have a mindset that, okay, God owns everything, and that's it, you still look at these words and you say, it's just ridiculous, though. Like houses and land, they liquidated and... I don't get it. It's so crazy. It's so unbelievable. It'll still seem so, so otherworldly radical to you in in an unbelievable way unless you understand the message that they knew that tethered their hearts to their generosity. And Luke tells us that. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Because of that message, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. What was it that, that took them from like maybe uh, clenched-fisted people to open-handed, here you go, <laughs> guys, this is all God's and, and you need something, so here you go, it's mine to share, mine to give. What took them there? Luke tells us the message of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. It's easy to just see those words on the screen or, or, or be able to give a, a catechetical definition to what the resurrection actually means. Have you ever unpacked it for your life? Like, think of what that message means for you. Like, the message of the resurrection has so much power because what the message of the resurrection tells you is that God saw you so broken, so lost, so dead in your sin that you had a massive need You needed rescue from yourself, from your sin that cries out, me, me, me. It's all about me. From a self-centered heart 
that says, it's all mine. And not just the stuff that God gives you, but the life that he has gifted you with. It's my life. It's my body. It's my choice. It's my, nobody should be, I am the Lord over my life. It's, it's all mine. And God said, in order to save you and rescue you from this, this terrible sin, it's going to require him to give up his largest asset, his son. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, were of one in heart and mind. That they didn't just share Jesus with you. No, the Father sacrificed. He didn't just say, here's 2%, five, here's 10, 11, 15% of my love. No, he, some of you heard me say this before, he bankrupt heaven. He, he gave up his son on a cross, poured out all of his wrath and just anger on his son as your substitute instead of you so that you could know no matter who you are, no matter what it is that you've done, no matter what your past, what your baggage, whatever it is, that you would be God's because of Christ. And the way you know that that's not just some wishful thinking, some words in a book that, you know, we just, every religion has their own good news. The resurrection. The resurrection is what all of this good news hinges on. The tangible proof that Jesus did not stay dead. He rose. What that is, is proof that the check has cleared the bank. The deposit was good. God's wrath was totally satisfied. Jesus is alive. Your sins are paid for. It is finished. And when God looks at you, there is no need left between you and him. And, as if that wasn't good enough, the message of the resurrection doesn't just totally reshape your vertical relationship with God, but your horizontal perspective with all of this stuff. The message of the resurrection tells you this world ain't your home. It's not your place. This isn't going to be the sum and substance of everything that you have in life. Now, you have an eternal inheritance to look forward to, a new heavens and a new earth. You think of the mansion that God, John's gospel, that is prepared for you. And when you think about that, like, like, if you watch those HGTV shows and you're, like, blown away by these million-dollar mansions and all this stuff and, like, these stone castles and modern marvels, what God has prepared for you is going to make that look like a dingy shack that needs to be condemned and bulldozed. Are you kidding me? Like, you think of the, the eternal inheritance can't perish or spoil a fate. Do you know what that means? That means that it's better than any retirement, IRA, 401k, 403b, 5, whatever else you want to add to that, letters and numbers. It's better than all of that because it is a nest egg that you will never exhaust. It is riches that, that is beyond compare that you will never be lacking, you will never again have a need, and you will never leave this world and think, ah, but I never got to go to the Bahamas. I never got to go to Rome. I never got to go to, who cares if you didn't go to Hawaii? You're with God. And you're going to see him face to face. And you're going to say, no, 
No, you're not going to think twice about what you did or didn't do in this life. Because you're with him forever. And then you can understand why they say, what is the world to me? And then you can understand how the message of the resurrection has the ability to change those believers' hearts in Acts chapter 4 to respond as they did. Like, do you think about that? No needy persons among them. Like, we have widows, we have poor, we have people who are crippled and diseased and struggling to pay their bills and, and they're trying to scrape up and they have no means of income. What are we going to do? And Luke tells us, well, here's what's going to happen. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Like, there were people coming up and just dropping off these fat stacks of cash just right at the apostles' feet, these bags of gold, and just saying, here you go. Because I know there are people who have a need, and give it to them. Because it's not my stuff. Here you go. In fact, did you know, did you catch the guy who got a nickname because he was so generous? Did you catch that? Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Like, from Cyprus, not even in Jerusalem where this church was. And he travels to Jerusalem, and he sees this need, and he says, okay, I'm going to liquidate my land, and he lays it at the feet of the apostles, and the church knows about this, and they say, you know what? We're going to give this guy a nickname. We're not going to call him Joey. We're not going to call him Joe or Seth or what. No, you know, we're going to call him Barnabas. Son of encouragement. Because wow, like that, that is so encouraging. Who does that? How, how could he lay down this and other people follow his lead and this cycle of generosity just continue and continue and continue? Well, Luke told us, he said in verse 33, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Do you know what the Greek literally says there? Great Grace was on them all. Great grace was at work because great grace is what they showed, because great grace is what they had received, because it's only great grace that can soften a heart from this to this. Here you go. If you were to say about this message, like, how do you... How do you finish the equation? Maybe it looks something like this. A manager mindset plus a merciful message equals massive, healthy, biblical generosity. It transforms not just your life, but spills over into the lives of others. And in closing, as I've been thinking about these words all week, there's been a question that's just been gnawing at me. Could we do it again? Like, could we do it again? Like, could this description be said of this family? That they were one in heart, mind, no one claimed any of their stuff was their own, and they shared everything they had, and that there were no needy people among them. And I know some people may be thinking, oh, I understand. Cue the music. This is like the, the last little cheerleading hurrah. Here we go. Pie in the sky. Pollyanna idea that we want to get to. This isn't, this isn't imaginary. This is real. 
This was a real church 2,000 years ago that really did these things and was really described in this way. It's possible. So what's getting in the way? What's holding us back? And I think the thing that's holding us back is not a plan. It's not that we don't have enough of a vision or enough of a, a, a bullet point list to say, okay, this priority, then this priority, then this priority, and here's how it all, no. You know what's holding us back? Right here. Not there yet. That's okay. Keep your money. You hear me say in the offering, if you're a guest or visitor, don't feel obligated to give. That means as much for our members as it does for everybody else. Because it's not going to help. What do you need that's going to transform your heart? Great grace. Ponder that great grace. Pray about it. Meditate on it. And think about what the, the great grace of the resurrection of Christ means not just for your relationship with God, but your relationship to this world. And keep pondering it, and keep pondering it, and keep pondering it, and, and keep praying about it. And just let that message sink in of who you are and how far God went to save you. Until he plants that message so deep that your heart goes from this stone-cold fist to this open hand that says, great grace is what I was given. And great grace is what I'm going to show. Amen.